0: Hello, I'm Alan Franks, founder of The Mill Financial Partners, and if this is your first time joining us, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Frankly Financial, a podcast fully focused on helping you live your fullest life through sound financial planning. Throughout this series of podcasts, we will attempt to cover anything and everything related to personal finances in the hopes of helping you get every single dollar working in unison towards your unique life goals. If you find this helpful and interesting, please click subscribe and remember that you can find more resources on our website, TheMillFP.com. Lastly, if you think you would benefit from a more one-on-one approach to your finances, please do not hesitate to visit our website and use our scheduling link to set up your initial complimentary consultation. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to another segment of Frankly Financial. Thank you so much for joining us again today. we got a a special guest today, Matt LaMarche. Matt is a realtor here in the Atlanta area, and we're bringing Matt in today to talk about the real estate markets a little bit, maybe even give us a few tips here on what we can expect here. Uh, But before we get into those questions, I want to kind of turn it over to you, Matt, let you introduce yourself and honestly say thank you for joining us here today. No, of course.
1: And thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. This is so, you know, I know a lot of us are zoomed out, but the fact that we have this technology is amazing. And the fact that we can use it this way is incredible. So thank you for your time.
0: No problem. No problem. So obviously, today you're a realtor in the Atlanta area, pretty well established here. But take us back in time. How did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, upbringing was very entrepreneurial. I had two grandfathers that were very, very entrepreneurial that basically their entire adult life ran their own businesses. So, um, you know, it was very, very close to small business and grew up in that world. And my parents were also uh, in small businesses at the time. So it was very easy for me to become an entrepreneur, I feel like. Um, And I think you're either born that way or you're not. Um, And that's just what it is. I think people can be um, taught and, and coached into becoming entrepreneurs, but I really believe that there's something deep, deep, deep inside of people that you're either born that way or you're not. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so grew up in a very entrepreneurial, um, you know, family and community around a ton of small business owners growing up and around our church and Boy Scouts and everything banned, everything that I was involved in, uh, you know, in high school and elementary school and middle school age. Um, and then once I went to college, um, took an econ class and the guy, the, the professor basically talked me out of finishing college. <laughs> and so I left college, was making great money washing cars every day and uh, decided that I was going to become an entrepreneur and, and get paid for what I did, not necessarily paid for what I knew. Um, yet here, almost 20 years later, have learned uh, a lot of really hard lessons from failing forward, I call it. Um, and, um, had another business before about 12, 13 years ago that I ran an eBay consignment business where I would take stuff for people, um, small business owners, nonprofits and stuff would sell it for them on eBay and take a commission and then give them the proceeds. And then about five years ago, started a lawn care and landscaping business with a brief stint there of about 10, 15 years in corporate America and sales and marketing. Uh, started a lawn care and landscaping business and then sold that in 2019 and then got into real estate about two, two and a half years ago now.
0: Okay, great, great. So that leads us to um, to our first question here, Matt. You're in real estate right now. What in the heck is going on with the housing market right now? It's crazy out there.
1: It is absolutely crazy. Um, and so, you know, for those of you in the Atlanta area, you know, in the last three, four five years, we've been in a really, really heavy seller's market. Well it's only gotten heavier, so to speak. Um, six months of inventory basically means that we have six months worth of houses to buy and sell and people that are investing in the Atlanta area. And what we mean by six months is there's six months of inventory that six months of people will come in and they'll buy those properties. Six months of people will come in and sell those properties. So you have both sides working at it. That's what we refer to as a balanced market. Anything less than six months is going to be considered more of a seller's market. So five months is a seller's market, but one month or one one month and a week is what I think we're currently at is a very deep seller's market. So basically what that means is that with a month and a week of inventory, we basically have a month and a week's worth of people coming in or buyers, and there's a number, it's around four to 5,000 people or homes that change hands every month here in the Atlanta area. Certainly that number goes up and certainly it comes down, but the average right now is running between about four and 5,000 homes every single month are changing hands. And so if we didn't have any new sellers come into the market in a month and a week, we would have zero houses on the market in Atlanta. So a month from now, um, you know there would be not one house on the market. That's basically what it means. The more than six months, so if we get to 8, 10, 12, 15 months of inventory, that means we're in a buyer's market where there's plenty of homes on the market, but not very many people to buy them. So a, a huge amount of inventory, 10, 15, 20,000 homes is what you're going to see on the market.
0: Great. So going back to that econ class that taught you how to uh, finish school there, Uh, I remember back in my first econ class, they talked about this idea of supply and demand. And supply and demand met at a place called the Equilibrium Point. And it seemed to me that when the pandemic hit roughly about a year ago to us filming this podcast, that the supply just absolutely diminished. And I could understand that because, not only were we was our home our home, it was also our office. It was also the kids' school, right? And then we also had this thing of we didn't want people dragging their germs through our homes throughout the day as well. So we didn't want to get the house ready for showing. We didn't want people coming in. And and to me, that's one of the reasons that supply just plummeted. But I'd expect it to start coming back a little bit, and it just it just hasn't, right? <laughs>
1: Not at all. Um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and what happened as a result, right? Cause and effect is that the more time we spent at our homes, one of two things happened. Um, you have group A, we'll call them that, um, fell in love with their home again, but maybe changed some things. So they did some renovations. They may have added an addition. They may have added an office <laughs> to your point about the homeschooling or virtual learning. Um, or now working from home. Um, and then group B would have been, we hate this house, and we need a bigger house, or we need a more convenient house to our new life uh, that's happening. And so yeah, there's two groups of people, those are the two groups. Um, and then there would be another smaller group that I would think um, said, I hate this house, and I want to go find something else. And so those guys became sellers that eventually would buy homes as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so what you're alluding to is, hey, this wasn't just a supply uh, problem. This was a huge demand issue, too, where all of a sudden, if you're living in a condo or an apartment, you went out and you want your own house. If you're living in a house, you want a bigger home. And so both forces working against each other here, just throw the equilibrium out of whack here. And this created this scenario that we're in right now.
1: No, you're exactly right. And it's not just the
0: homeschooling, the working from home,
1: the escaping the city and the small confined spaces that we had. Um, it was a bigger yard. It was, I'm not commuting anymore. So I don't have to be in that mm-hmm. location that I, I mean, there's so many things. And I try to tell people, pandemic or not, um, there's always going to be a million factors that people take into account, right? If you have young kids, schools are probably at the top of your mind. Um, But if you don't have to commute ever again, and if your company has decided that you're not going to lease any more commercial space, that 30-minute commute that you used to enjoy, you know, you now make your way from your bedroom to the kitchen to the office. That's right. um, It's a totally different world. And so, you know, post-pandemic, who knows what this thing is going to look like if people are going to readjust yet again. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting in the middle of March when Atlanta, uh, as a metro at least, pretty much shut down and people stopped going into the office and stopped congregating like they used to during social events and sporting events and so on and so forth. We saw about a month to 45 day period where the real estate market just stopped. No one moved. People moved. The majority of people that were in the market stopped. They stopped marketing their homes on the listing side. The buyers stopped looking at homes completely. I had 22 buyers at the time. Not one of them called me in that entire 45 days and said, hey, can mm. we look at houses? I mean, it literally like a big pause button, right? Mm. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see not just in the next, you know, nine to 12 months what happens, but years down the road, how uh, our lifestyles change or if people are continuing to work from home in perpetuity, um, does
0: that change the way and the, in the the function of their home yeah so let's let's talk about what you mentioned at the beginning that we're, right now we're at like a month cycle typically a good balance cycle is around 6 months are you seeing a difference between in the city of atlanta and on the outer suburbs because for the past 5 years Um, there's been a lot of people trying to get into this city because it's become such a cool city to live. And now for the past year, it seems like the home values in the city have not nearly increased as much as some of the home values in the suburbs have.
1: Absolutely. Good question. So at the micro level, there are suburbs, there are cities, there are communities and neighborhoods that are thriving. And some of them are going absolutely berserk when it comes to values and prices, 100 percent. But the macro view of Atlanta, the 22 county area that we call Atlanta, at least not necessarily within the city limits, um, is actually doing quite well. And one of the reasons that it's doing quite well is because people are leaving California and New Mm -hmm. York and New Jersey and Chicago and other major metropolitan areas that blame it on the pandemic, blame it on taxes, blame it on, again, a lot of other factors. Um, yeah. People are flocking to Atlanta because of the low taxes, because the low cost of living, Um, and so there's been a bit of a balancing act where, yes, you had people moving out of the city to get more space, to be closer to parks, mm-hmm. or outdoor living because of the confinement, uh, but then you also had people f- from New York or from you know LA or high density areas that are used to living like that, actually replacing them and moving yeah. into the condos and townhomes and so on and so forth. And so an interesting stat that came out a couple months ago was uh, specific to the condo market here in Atlanta. Um, you know, if you drive through downtown Atlanta or midtown Atlanta, you'll see, you know, 10, 14, 20 cranes up at any given moment. Those are mostly residential buildings being built right now um, for the condo market. So about two, two and a half years ago, we had 79 months of condo inventory which is like six, seven years. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So what happened was over the last two years, we ate up 76 months of that inventory. Mm. And basically what we're left with is about currently today, as we sit here at the end of April, about two or three months of condo inventory. So we've eaten up six years of inventory, (laughs) in two literal years so Hmm. that tells you that gives you a really good indication and again that's a small subset of condo living you know condo dwelling people but this massive amount of inventory eaten up to like this much left and even that now is in a very very hot seller's market so uh, if you have a condo in Atlanta it's not a bad time to sell
0: Nice, nice. So not a bad time to sell, but let's talk about the other side, buying, right? So here you are. We've got a lot of clients, younger clients that have been waiting to get in their first home. They've been waiting for that dip, right? And as soon as that dip happens, they're going to buy. So pandemic comes, they're like, hey, here's the dip. So they're getting ready to buy and buy and then hey, it shoots to the other side. You got people coming in uh, from New York and California paying homes with cash, not even giving them a shot here. So, so my question to you is, what are you telling these first time home buyers who are out there just you know, holding their hands up saying, what in the heck, man? Are you telling them, hey, just wait it out? Or are you telling them, hey, let's forge through and still buy a place? What is Matt LaMarche telling these people that are probably really frustrated right
1: now? Yeah, yeah, brace yourself, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but
1: in all seriousness, I, I do work with some first-time home buyers, and I don't, I don't specify, you know, any part of the business that I work in or don't work in. My Georgia real estate license is good all over Georgia. I live, work, and play in Sandy Springs, but I help buyers and sellers all over the all over the state, legitimately, right? Um, But one thing that I would tell first time home buyers right now is there's there's two ways this is going to go. Right. When you think about this as an investment, and I think this will bring a lot of value to your audience's thinking. I I normally have thought of my first home as my biggest asset, my biggest investment. And I want to protect that. Right. So there's two schools of thoughts. And the reason that I present both of these is because you have to know personal finance is very personal. (laughs) You have to know what your goals are. You have to reverse engineer you know how do i make the best decision for me right what applies to you may not apply to me and may not apply to the next person and so on and so forth so figure that out first and then you're going to fall into one of two categories here the first is going to be you will absolutely move in the next six to twelve months and i use that very uh liberally because it could be in the next week it could be in the next depending on where you are in your home search um, you could find your dream home or your first home in the next week or two. That's certainly possible. However, normally what I caution my buyers with is the normal process takes anywhere from about 60 to 90 days. And that means from the time we hop on Zillow or I set up a search for you in FMLS, you're going to take about 60 to 90 days in general. Now that has been extended to more like six to 12 months. And the reason that is, is A, because of the inventory, B, because of the competition that you have uh, and other buyers being in the market, right, competition. And then the third thing is it's just taking longer right now. So it's not just a structural logistics thing within our industry, but there are very fewer cases of people finding a house in 30 and 60 and 90 days. And there is a whole heck of a lot more, the other 80 Mm -hmm. percent are actually finding something that they like. And again, may or may not be their dream home. A lot of people are making uh, rash decisions right now and yep. like giving up something to make a decision work even in that six to 12 month period. So set your expectations, figure out what you need or what you want out of this process and out of this transaction <laughs> and out of that home and then just extend to that and be willing to wait. Yeah. The second piece to that is, Um, If you don't have to move, for instance, if you're in a rental right now and you're questioning, is this a good time to buy because of the lack of inventory, because of the low interest rates and so on and so forth. Again, figure out who you are, where you ultimately want to go, but then let's reverse engineer. There is a potential that a year from now values will be considerably higher. No one has a crystal ball. No one knows what values are going to do. No one knows if this is a bubble or not. We can look at numbers and say that there's been basically two recessions where prices in homes actually reduced. But I mean, we're talking about one to one and a half percent, like not much at all. Right. And that was 2000. Oh, gosh, 2007, 2008, where we saw a year increase. But that was because of the inventory overage as opposed to where we currently are today. So. Is it a possibility that we'll see value increases substantially jump from, say, the middle of April in 2021 to the middle of April of 2022? Absolutely. It's always a possibility. So your question to yourself has to be, am I okay taking the six to 12 months that it might take me to find a home and actually move and buy to realize some percentage of that increase?
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, and there's also the fact that, hey, if we rent for another year, let's say that our rent's $1,500 a month, that's $18,000 towards rent not going to pay down a mortgage, not going towards building equity in a home. So, gotta you have to ask yourself, do you think that that home price will drop $18,000? Right. Where are interest rates going to be? Right now, it's safe to say they're pretty darn low right now. There's a good chance that they could be higher in a year from now as well. But but let's talk about uh, a little bit about the mental and the emotional toll. Like, OK, so you're going to buy a house and I'm hearing all these horror stories of putting 10, 15 offers down and not winning any of them. So, okay, talk to talk to a first-time home buyer or any home buyer in this instance, because a lot of people are first-time home buyers in this kind of market. Talk to the emotional side of this of what they should prep themselves for. Absolutely. Well, so let's use that word emotional.
1: I think that's a very powerful word, right? Um, there's a lot of emotion that comes along when you're buying your first home, right? You can see yourself getting married and raising kids or whatever stage of life you're in. Um, it's an emotional process, right? It's an emotional decision to make. And so just saying it out loud is very, very powerful because you aren't giving it power. You just understand and recognize that there is power in this decision, right? And that's why I tell people six to 12 months because it is gonna take time. It is going to be a process. But this is a really big deal. This is a very emotional decision. And you should take time. Um, you shouldn't feel rushed by a real estate agent or a realtor. You should feel as though I can take my time. I can make the right decision for me and my family and so on and so forth. And so I tell people to say that out loud. It is emotional. Um, you know, you're going to live here for two, three, five, seven, 20 years. Who knows? Right. Um, and so it's really important that we add that weight to it, not to give it the power, but just to say that out loud. And then subsequent to that, when you um, are looking at homes, it's very, very important that you, and this is very difficult when it's an emotional decision to give it the business mindset. And what I mean by that is put the numbers to it, right? Find out what your interest rates going to be, get your pre-approval, find out what your mortgage payment, your insurance, your taxes, all of that looks like because we can talk about how your you know your rental might be fifteen hundred dollars a month and you're paying eighteen thousand dollars a year, but there are other costs associated with owning a home that you don't have to worry about when you're renting right so yeah. there's a much more holistic look that we need to take at the numbers um, gotcha. and then take the emotion out of it so i I'm going to contradict myself here put the emotion on it, but then take it out of it and look at that home or homes objectively and say. Is this in the right location? Is this the right size? Does it have the space we need? Does it have the yard we want? Does it have the lifestyle that we wanna fit? And then put that emotion back into it because if it doesn't fit the investment side of things and if you make emotional decisions in real estate, it can come back to bite you financially speaking. So those are my two um, kind of perspectives if you will on that.
0: Great, great, great advice. And then let's take it to the next level. Let's talk about the people who 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 are in homes right now, right? So we've got two buyers. We have the first-time home buyer. Then we also have this buyer that's sitting in this house, and it is just – really accrued some wealth and some uh, some equity in in their homes. And they're looking at this and they're saying, man, we could cash out. And sometimes we're we're looking at hundred, two hundred thousand dollars of tax-free money right here. I can pay off a lot of bills, right? Um But then all of a sudden they realize, crap, I've got to move someplace. So I don't have six to 12 month time horizon. I've got a one to two month time horizon. And I've got to go find a home now in a market where there's very little inventory. So I guess my question here is, you know, it, it seems it's so alluring to sell the house and get that quick money right here. But is it wise knowing that the next home you move to is probably going to, you're probably going to want a nicer, bigger home, um, unless, you, unless you're retiree or in, a, you know, an odd scenario? Uh, and then, and that nicer, bigger home is probably going to be inflated in value even more than your current home.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, Let's touch on that last piece there first, because I think, again, going back to the to the buyer, any buyer, whatever potential upside you might see over the next six months to a year, right? that you feel like you might miss out on? And again, we don't know where it's going to go, but let's just assume there was a 10% increase that occurred over the next year. So you're going to get 1% roughly every single month that you buy a home, right? So if you buy today, you're going to realize a 10% increase. Let's just use that number. If you bought six months from now, you've missed out on 5% right? So if the market shifts, that number is going to change, right? And it could go up, it could go down. But I think the big part to really enunciate there is that there is going to be, and we'll go back to the econ class, opportunity costs, right? You have an option. As a seller right now, a lot of real estate agents are saying, it's a great time to sell. It's a great time to sell. It's a great time to buy. It's a great time to buy. And you're like, well, what if I'm both? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I pride myself on not leaving any of my uh, sellers homeless. So the greatest asset that sellers right now have is yes, a home that they own and potentially have a ton of equity in, correct? But the biggest asset they have, in my opinion, and this is just one man's opinion, they have time on their side. So they can sell that house like that if it's priced appropriately and if it's in great condition. But that question, where do I go? is the fantastic question to ask, because you can go rent, you can certainly go buy, you have options, you got a number of options ahead of you. And again, you can even You could even
0: lease from the people that you sold it to, right?
1: For for months, if needed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and most buyers right now understand because of how competitive the current landscape is that they're probably going to have to be flexible on their terms with that, right? And so that's what I'm concerning my buy, my buyers and my sellers with is as a buyer, you have to remain flexible. And especially if you have flexibility to add and you don't have to sell to buy, um, you've got more flexibility than anyone. So with my sellers, I'm telling them the great thing about your position right now, if that home is in good condition and we price it appropriately and we can sell it very, very quickly, is that the buyer that comes to us may give us 30 days. They may give us two weeks. They may give us three months. But you've got time on your side. And that is honestly one of the biggest things that people underestimate with the real estate transaction is the terms. We could talk about price and what we can get you for that house and what you're going to net and the check that you're going to get at closing. But it doesn't mean a thing. If you've got to move two or potentially three times, that gets expensive very, very quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the terms real quick. Um, because we're, I'm seeing terms here that i've never seen i've, I've seen some appraisals waived some inspections like reduced to two days right so what are you seeing on the buyer side to make their offer a little bit more attractive amongst the 50 that they're going to get on day one right now what are you seeing as far as terms that are helping buyers actually land a home Sure.
1: So I'm not a financial advisor by any stretch of the imagination, so take this for what it's worth. But from the real estate angle, um, I tell my buyers to put your best foot forward. If this is the house, the only house that you want this week, let's say, <laughs> um, put your best foot forward. Give them your best offer because that's that's all you can do right now. Honestly, um, do not waive financial uh, contingencies. Do not waive appraisal contingencies unless and a big old fat asterisk on this you are comfortable with the value that is being asked in other words the contract amount that you write you're good with and you believe that there's enough intrinsic value in that neighborhood in that community in that city and that county define it how you like that you are not worried about getting financed or having an appraisal attached to it and i'll give you an example if you have a house that's offered at $200,000 and you wanna go up to 225 and you have the cash to, to make that work, right? If it only appraises for 200 and you are under contract for 225, you're gonna to have to come up with that $25,000 in cash in addition to all the other fees that you're gonna pay at closing. If you don't have that cash available, you're out. You, you're out, especially if that uh, seller will not remove that appraisal contingency and will not reduce the price to meet the appraised price. Secondly, If that house or in that neighborhood uh, homes are regularly selling for 225 or more, there's intrinsic value built in, right? If those homes are regularly selling for 200,000, that's a big risk that you're taking by paying a $25,000 premium on that one home in that neighborhood.
0: Gotcha, great, great. So, a couple other questions here. Um, You know, obviously, I think there was a million shows made about flipping homes, right? And flipping homes was a massive thing dating back to two thousand and eight, when you could get, you know, when you actually did have a dip in home values. Is that still a thing right now? Is you know, are there still deals out there where you can go in there and you can flip a house? Absolutely. And it only
1: takes 30 minutes to flip a house, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, or an hour, I guess, depending <laughs> on. Um, no, there, there are definitely deals to be had, 100%. And I work with a lot of investors that are trying to build a nest egg outside of their retirement and outside of their current, you know, main primary residence. Um, and so, you know, I have investors that want to build portfolios of five, 10, 50 homes over the course of the next 10, 15 years, to pay for kids college, to pay for retirement, to help um, fund retirement. I mean, a lot, a myriad of reasons that they're investing in real estate, even if it is just their primary residence. And so there are flippers still out there. There is flipping still happening. Um, I think you don't hear about it as much because of the lack of inventory because of the number of buyers. So if you're a flipper, um, you're competing against currently in Atlanta, there's four buyers for every one home. Mm. So if you're a flipper and you're one of the four, <laughs> mm. you have a business to run and you have margins to meet and you may have investors to um appease. And so you can't pay what retail is willing to pay, much less bid (laughs) significantly higher than what we're seeing happen right now with 30 or 40 or 50 offers driving the values up. And so as a flipper, it is considerably more difficult. It is still happening. Uh, certainly there's, there's anecdotal type stories out there of investors and wholesalers still flipping homes. Um, but what we're seeing and the reason they're having some success is they've been at it for years. And yep. they've had conversations years and years and years ago and developed relationships with agents and with other investors um, that are getting opportunities to um, to flip home, continue to flip homes right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's one thing that I think is kind of humorous is that uh, to most of us, you think anybody can go just flip a home, right? Or just go get a home and redo it, you know, and it's done. Uh, No, these people are professionals. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could really lose a lot of money uh, trying to flip a home.
1: Even if you do know what you're doing, you can still lose a lot of money because no one controls the market. I, as a real estate agent, and the other 14,000 of us that are represented in the Atlanta Realtors Association have no idea where this thing is headed, right? We're just along for the ride and we have no control over it either. So we're adapting to everyday market uh, dynamics that, Come at us just, just like water out of a fire
0: hose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, a couple of rapid fire questions just kind of wrap us up here today, and then we'll kind of close with any additional thoughts here. All right, somebody's listening to this who wants to go buy a home. What are the one, two, or three pieces of advice that you would tell that person who's just now entering that home search?
1: Sure. Good question. So the first is talk to your financial people, right? Talk to your CPA, talk to your wealth building coach, talk to your financial planner, talk to anyone and everyone that you talk with about your financial circumstances, because things do change. But if you have some consistency and if you have thought about purchasing a home for quite some time, especially, and you know you might be paying a lot in rent that you could move into a mortgage and taxes and insurance and so on and so forth, talk with those people first, because they're gonna help set you up for, this is what you can afford, here's how much you should be thinking about, here's how your other assets are allocated, and here's the conversation financially speaking. And the reason I tell people to start there is, once you understand what you can afford, what your budget looks like, what you want your monthly mortgage payment to be, then you come to me or another realtor and you say, this is what I've been pre-approved for. Of course, you're gonna reach out to a lender. You're gonna provide them some documentation. They're gonna do some rough math and say, here's what we think we can get you locked in on an interest rate, whether you're an investor or a first time home buyer, the credits and so on and so forth. um, And here's your budget. Um, But the reason I start with the other financial people that you're already engaged with is because they know your history and yep. they've seen your increase in income and they've seen your increase in savings and they've seen your net worth grow to a point that you're now in a position to actually make a purchase like this.
0: Um, you got guys- so- you guys, ready, aim, fire, right? Too many people are playing around on Zillow and they aim and then fire without doing, getting ready for it, right? Get ready so that you can have all your ducks in the line because no offer is going to be accepted if you don't have the mortgage saying that you're pre approved, right? So, ready, aim, then fire on
1: that. And a lot of sellers won't even let you see their house if you don't send them a pre approval letter. So, yeah, word, word of the wise there. So, talk with your financial people, get with a lender. Understand what your pre-approval looks like. And again, the reason that we get a pre-approval is not because we want to know all about your financial history as an agent. At least I have zero desire. All I need to know is, can I provide this to a seller that will actually entertain our offer? And so for today in April of 2021, the reason that's really important is because again, they might not let you even come see that house if you haven't sent a pre-approval letter. But also if you send them an offer without a pre-approval letter, they may not even look at your offer. So yep. start there. Once you've engaged with a lender and you understand that part, the next piece would be to interview three to five real estate agents. And the reason that I would say do that and don't just call me is because you're going to see a vast difference in there is a very low cost of entry to get your real estate license. You pay a couple hundred bucks, you go take a class, you eventually pass the state exam and then you join a brokerage. But the state exam is telling you basically how to pay, how to, the, the course is telling you how to pass the state exam. It's not telling you how to <laughs> run a real estate business. And so just like a financial planner takes tests, gets CE courses done and is on the cutting edge of of the technology and the, the education within their world, it's the exact same thing within the real estate industry. So you take your test, you get, um, you know, with a brokerage and you get your license active and you go out and you start your business. Um, it's a very low cost of entry. It's a very low entry uh, barrier, if you will, to get into this industry. And there is, um, you would say probably 10% of the people within this industry creating about 90 to 95% of the results. And what yep. that means is the other 90% are creating <laughs> 10, five to 10%. So there are professionals yep. and then there are hobbyists, we call them. Yep. Yep. Um, and so what you're gonna do when you interview a real estate agent is you're gonna understand is this gonna be a good working relationship? Are they gonna keep my best interests at heart? When you sign your buyer's broker's agreement to work with that buyer's agent, that person has a fiduciary responsibility just like a financial planner does, just like a CPA does, just like anyone that represents you on a financial front. And the reason that's really important for you to understand is you're gonna spend a lot of time with that person over the next six to 12 months in the car, looking at houses, They're going to like you. They're going to, you're going to like them. It's really, really important. And you get super deep with some of these buyers and the buyer's agent, um, that, uh, that you want to make sure you've made the right decision. So I tell people interview three to five
0: wonderful great advice i have been on the other side of both scenarios my first realtor i got just from the number on a sign and ow, oh, that that really was a bad experience and then the second realtor that we used was just awesome having an awesome realtor in your corner representing you is so much now uh, you know fill people in here because some people may not know it it doesn't cost the buyer anything to have a realtor correct that's correct so
1: when you look at it- the settlement statement that you get at closing, um, you know, the seller pays both commissions for both the buyer's agent and the listing agent or the seller's agent that is used. So, um, yeah, it is a free service. Obviously, we will be paid by the seller. Um, but yes, that is exactly how it works.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I did not know that when I was like, "Oh, I'll save some money by doing this on my own. Don't do that. Just don't do it. Um, awesome. So flipping the script here, that was some great advice for people looking to, to buy a home. What would you tell somebody who's looking to potentially sell their home?
1: Absolutely. So, um, again, it can be a great time to sell. You have to know you, you have to know your situation, you have to know what the next step looks like in order to actually make a really, really well thought out decision here. And so a lot of the sellers that I'm talking with right now are looking at, I can sell this house myself and I'll make more money because I won't be using an agent. That could not be further from the truth. It has been statistically proven time and time and time again that not only can a realtor sell your house for more, But in fact, they'll sell it a lot faster than you could. So Mm. do not just throw that sign in the yard, because if you do, you are going to be in a world of hurt right now. And worse, you could be held liable for stuff that doesn't get disclosed or is not put into the transaction.
0: Mm. Mm. You know, I remember uh, the house that I'm in right now was a for sale by owner. And I remember walking away from that thinking, I will never do for sale by owner. They had the house completely underpriced. They basically had our realtor do everything. It wasn't, it was not fair to our realtor because they didn't know how to generate the paperwork or whatever. So, you know, now our realtors doing double the work for half the pay here. And so I almost, (laughs) now I wouldn't say it should be illegal to sell for sale by owner, but I just kind of made a decision. If I ever sell a home, I'm not doing for sale by owner here. I'm getting a realtor to represent me.
1: Yeah. We're, yeah. We're the, buyer. um, the buyer's agent that's representing you when you go to purchase, they should be adding value to this conversation, right? They should be telling you what the strongest offer needs to be that you can put in. They should be having the dialogue that you and I have had here about how to best position you because a lot of people right now are like, well, I need you to go in and negotiate on the price. That's not happening right now. And again, a year from now, this could be totally different, but I'm a great negotiator. I think there's only so much I can negotiate right now. Yeah. The price is what the price is in a lot of instances. Now, again, price, condition, all of this stuff we have to take into account, but I can't always call a negotiation right now a win. Sometimes a win is just getting a house under contract right now. Yeah. That's super, super clear. So. Just to set expectations again, it, they should be adding value to the conversation, right? So hire them to do their job. That's really what I ask.
0: Yeah, what I loved about our realtor is sometimes she would, um, she would basically we would be offering too much, and she would tell us, "No, that's too much." And I really appreciate that because obviously us offering more would help get the job done, would help get the contract signed here. But she was, you know, looking out for our best interest as a fiduciary, saying, "Nope, you're offering too much. Don't don't do that." Um, and so, uh, well, awesome. Well, hey, last question here. Uh, and once again, thanks so much for coming on. Give us some of your time, your wisdom here. So last question. What's the best way for any of these listeners to get in contact with you?
1: Sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, the easiest way, honestly, is my cell phone number. It's 678 687 four three nine seven. I'm the realtor that picks up their phone uh, or responds to text messages at least. Um, which even in today's hectic and crazy world, you know, um it just is what it is. But that's the best way and that's the fastest way to get a response. Mm-hmm. You can always email me at matt at mattlamarsh.com. Um of course I have a website and all over social social media as well on Instagram and Facebook and Clubhouse and Snapchat and all of those as well. But yeah, Matt Lamarch.
0: Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks so much again for joining us today and filling us in on this crazy, crazy real estate market. Uh, best of luck to you and all your clients as you're navigating through this. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I
1: appreciate that. Thank you.
0: This information is being provided for educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are those of Alan Franks. Alan Franks' views are not necessarily those of MML Investor Services, LLC, or its subsidiaries. William Allen Franks is a registered representative of and offers securities and investment advisory services through MML Investor Services, LLC, member SIPC. The Mill Financial Partners is not a subsidiary or affiliate of MML Investor Services, LLC, or its affiliated companies, and its OSJ can be found at 1050 Crown Point Parkway, Suite 1800, Atlanta, Georgia 30338, or reached at 770-551-3400.